that's uh, hoping to, to influence and hoping to, to destroy um, to destroy us. And this is the encouragement. Even though of Satan's influence, even though of all that he's doing, all that he's throwing against us, all that he's throwing against Pergamum, um, you're holding on to Jesus. You are holding on to Jesus. You are not walking away from your faith. Even though Antipas was killed, and it would have been easy. It would have been good reason to give up. It would have been good reason to compromise your faith. We looked at this last week as well. It would have been, I mean, if there was ever a reason to sort of water down the gospel, water down what you believed, it would have been in the face of someone being killed for being um, a Christian. I mean, we would justify that like that. If someone was killed, let's just take it easy. Let's just, I mean, instead of saying Jesus, let's just say jail you know let's just let's just keep a lid on a little bit we don't want us all to die but Jesus is encouraging Pergamum and saying even though Antipas was killed you you held on to me you did not deny who Jesus was you didn't deny who Jesus was and when the pressure is on what do we hold on to what is it that we're clinging to are we holding on to Jesus when the temptation is to hold on to something or someone else like I said, Ephesians, Smyrna and Pergamum have this sort of theme in common. In Ephesus, the, the encouragement was, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. In Smyrna, it was, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And in Pergamum, it's, you're holding on to my name and did not deny me in your faith. Jesus loves this patience. He loves this endurance, this perseverance of hanging on to him, even when everything else says, let go. Everything else says, give up and hang on to something else. I mean, this is just doing you damage. It's doing you harm. It's causing more suffering. It's not helping you. It's like in the valley, you know, we don't want to sing. We don't want to hang on to God. There's other things that we want to turn to. And Jesus is saying, hang on to me. I love it when people hang on to me in the face of adversary, in the face of suffering. Hold on to the one who holds on to you. He loves allegiance in the face of adversary. So that's the encouragement. Then comes the challenge. And the challenge is, is pretty big. It's um, a hard pill to swallow, but it says this. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, or Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have also, you, have, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So first we get this um, picture or this idea that you're holding to the teaching of Balaam. You're holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you want to read a funny story in the Bible, go and read the story of Balaam. Has anyone ever read the story of Balaam? It's in Numbers 22 through 24. I mean, it, it's just the funniest story um, because it's... God says, do this, and Balaam does it, and then he says, God says, actually, no, go and do it, and then Balaam's like, can I do this, and no, I can't. It's, you're trying to follow the storyline in that story. It's, it makes your head spin a little bit, and then there's a talking donkey in the middle of it. It's great. Um, so go and read that story for a bit of a, bit of a laugh, but, um, but also to see that there is something that God is doing. There's something that God wants us to see in the story, apart from just have a laugh. Um, there's something that he wants us to see. So Balaam is hired by Balak, the king, to curse the Israelites because the Israelites are doing so well and um, Balak is from the Moabites and he's just a bit worried about the Israelites advancing and it's like, oh, um, we're not going to beat them with our, you know, our army so we're just going to have to find someone to put a curse on them um, and 
that's our only hope. And so he hires Balaam, who's like a prophet or, um, you know, someone who speaks curses and blessings over people. And he's obviously successful in the way he does it because he's getting money for it. This is what he is sort of known for. And so people are paying Balaam to come and pronounce blessings or curses on their friends or their enemies. Um, and so this is what Balaam's doing. 2 Peter tells us a little bit about Balaam and says that his love for money was what motivated him. And so Balaam was um, speaking curses or blessings only because of what he was getting. And so Balak was promising all these wealth, all these riches to curse the Israelites. Balaam would go and um, say to God, uh, all right, God, I want to curse the Israelites. I mean, what a thing to pray. It's like, God, is it okay if I put a curse on someone? And God's Every time, no, Balaam, that's not okay. That's not what we're doing. Um, and so Balaam tries to curse the Israelites like three times, and every time he goes to curse them, blessings come out of his mouth. Um, it's just a funny thing. It's just like, anyway, go and read the story. Um, but Jesus here is talking about what Balaam taught. What did Balaam teach? So we know a little bit about what Balaam did and how he operated. But what did Balaam teach? While it's not super clear in Numbers, uh, Balaam doesn't, it's, there's no recorded uh, words of Balaam teaching this, it is clear by what is um, sort of looked back on in Numbers 31, is that Balaam taught the Israelites, or he taught the Moabites, how to entice the Israelites to sin. He taught the, the, the Moabites, if you would put uh, women and food that they can't have, that they shouldn't be touching, in front of them, in front of these men, they will be tempted in and sin, and then they will turn their backs on God. And so Balaam taught how to entice people away from God. Balaam taught the Moabites how to overcome the Israelites but through tempting them with idolatry and with sex. And so the idols were really about hanging on to something other than Jesus. Holding on to idolatry is simply going to something other than Jesus for your sense of purpose, for your sense of security, for your sense of identity. Anything that we hold on to in place of Jesus that gives us all that we need is, is an idol in our life. And so idols aren't always bad things. Food is not a bad thing, but it can become an idol. Um, other things that might be idols in our life are status or money or family. Not always bad things, but when they become ultimate things, when they become the thing that we hang on to at the expense of everything else, they become idols in our life. And, and this is what Balaam was teaching. This is what Balaam was teaching um, the Israelites. When they are raising our reason for living, they are idols. And he also lures them away with sex, with sexual immorality, following the desires of our soul rather than keeping in step with the Spirit. Again, sex is not bad. Sex is created by God and for a good purpose. But when it is used out of his context and out of his original purpose, it becomes something that draws us away from God, not towards him. And so both these things lead us away from where God would want us to be. And then he goes on, um, Jesus goes on in this verse to talk about what the Nicolaitans taught as well. Again, we're not really sure exactly who they, were, who they were or what they taught, but whatever it was, it was causing the Pergamum church to stop holding on to Jesus like they should. Balaam and Nicolaitans were in the same way teaching um, the Pergamum church or people were, were teaching this idea to hold on to other things rather than Jesus. Get your identity or get your sense of satisfaction or, 
Or try to hang on to both. Try to hang on to both. Like, have, still hang on to Jesus, yes. It's, it's, it's a, a twisted truth. You can have this thing as well. You can have that thing as well. So how might it look today? How might it look today? I think it might be like going down a slippery slope like this. It might be how we minimise sin. This is what it might look like for us today to hold to these similar teachings. We might minimise sin. We might say, you know what, it's just not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. Sin's just sin. And, um, and the Nicolaitans, one of the commentaries I read was like, uh, they were teaching that the more you sin, the more grace you encounter. So, I mean, God's, God's grace is sufficient, so you may as well just live however you want because you'll just receive more of God's grace. And so this is the one, one of the ways we might hold to this teaching is by minimising sin. It's like, it's, it's okay. It's okay. It's, everyone does it. Everyone cheats on their taxes. Everyone's a bit immoral. Everyone, you know, speaks um, that way a little bit. Everyone judges a bit. Everyone gossips a bit. It's okay. It's okay. We just minimise sin. We might minimise our own sin. Or we might avoid the Bible. We might talk more about what others say than what Jesus says or the Word of God says. We might avoid what the Bible says because it's confrontational or because we don't like it. It's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, so we might just avoid it. Or we might justify certain sin. It's okay that you do that because, I mean, it's a tough season of life and you may as well. You may as well. I mean, it's okay. We might justify our own sin. Or we might celebrate the world's success more than we celebrate the word's success. So we might, we might speak up what the world would speak up and say, it's, oh, look how much money they're making or, or look how successful they are or look how much status or how much popularity they have rather than speak up about what God says is successful is successful, about humility, about kindness, about love, about joy, about generosity. Romans 12 verse 2 in the message says this, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. The other thing that as I read this letter that I was just struck by it's just this consistency with what's coming out of people's mouths. You know, Jesus is revealed as the, the one with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And then um, Jesus goes on and says, what is taught is the problem. So what people are saying is the problem. What Balaam taught, what the Nicolaitans talk about. Uh, and Balaam is... The story is all about blessings and curses, what's coming out of his mouth and the power of those words. And so I think there's something for us to really grab a hold of here that Jesus is concerned about. He's saying, I'm concerned about what you're speaking and what you're hearing. What words are coming out of your mouth and what words you're listening to. This is the concern I have. And I want you to hear my words. I'm the one with a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. I'm the one with power coming out the words that I speak. And so listen to my words. What are the words that we find coming out of our mouth? Are they ones of blessing? Are they ones that build Jesus up? Or are they words that tear down? And what are the words that we're listening to? What podcasts? What music? What TV? What books? What are the words that you hear? Are they words that build up? Are they words that glorify Jesus? Or are they words that tear down? I think that's a big challenge for us. That was a big challenge for Pergamum, is the, the words that they were hearing and the words they were speaking. 
And Jesus says, I'm going to come with my word at the end of the day. I'm going to come with a word of judgment. I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. I'm going to separate those that hold to me and those that don't hold to me. I get the final word. And that's what we should be most um, fearful of, is that Jesus has the final word. We don't have the final word. Only Jesus does. And then Jesus gives them a promise, and it's, gr- it's a great promise. Whoever has ears to hear, verse 17, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of a hidden manner. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Again, every letter has this idea. Listen, listen, can you hear it? Can you hear the voice of God? Can you hear Jesus speaking to you? Can you hear what he is saying? Don't hear what I'm saying. Hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus has a message for you. He has a message for me. Can you hear what the Spirit is saying? He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And so the manna represents, if you know your Old Testament, you know the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. They had manna come down from heaven. And so every day they were given provision for what they needed. They might have been hungry and, 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 and wanted more to store up security, but Jesus would only give what was needed. Every day they had to rely on the manna from heaven. God provided what they needed when they needed it. It echoes this idea in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, don't worry about uh, what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Just seek after God's kingdom. Seek Jesus. Hold on to Jesus and all these other things that you worry about, they'll be taken care of. I will take care of the rest if you hold on to me. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you need. You won't miss out when you hold on to Jesus. You are not going to go wanting. The things you have to let go of to really hold on to Jesus won't seem like loss because you will find as you hold on to Jesus everything else that you need. And then the white stone. He talks about this white stone with a name written on it. And this is like a beautiful image. If you look at this this idea in Scripture, if you look at this idea, uh, the white stone for the Romans in that time was a beautiful, beautiful thing. It, it represented citizenship. Um, it was used as like a ticket to a great banquet sometimes. It was representing friendship. It represented acquittal in a court of law. And it would have someone's name on it. So someone would have a white stone with their name on it, uh, and they would use that to sort of cast their vote uh, in an election or uh, for a government um, decision and so everyone who was a Roman citizen would get a white stone with their name on it one white stone and they would put it in and that's how they would cast their vote and so it represents this idea of citizenship it showed that you were a citizen of, of Rome it was also used as like I said as a as a ticket to a banquet or a feast or a sign of friendship or even used as a sign of acquittal in the court of law and so Jesus gives us, he gives his children a white stone to show you that you are a citizen of heaven, that you belong, that you're invited to his banquet, to his feast. You are a friend, not an enemy of his, and that you have no sin. Your sin has been acquitted. You are free. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then there's a new name written on it. There's a new name. You are not what you used to be. You are not who you used to be. You are a new creation. The old is gone, and what you carried with your old name, the sin, the shame, the hurt, the pain, it's all gone. There is no pain, there is no sin, there is no mourning, there is no suffering in heaven. This is all represented in this new name. Heaven is coming, and you'll no longer have any ties to your old name. It's all redeemed. 
There is complete joy. There is complete peace. There is complete life. What are you hanging on to? What are you hanging on to? What are you holding on to most? Are you holding on to Jesus? Or are you trying to hold on to multiple things? Are you trying to say, well, Jesus, and then I'm just going to hold on to these other things as well because I like to feel comfortable in my culture. I like to feel comfortable in the world I live. Jesus is saying, let go of everything else and just hold on to me. Hold on to the one who holds on to you. Let go of the world's false hopes and promises. It can never give you what Jesus can. What are you holding on to most? That's the question this morning. That's the challenge that Jesus would put in front of us. And the encouragement is, it's, there's always an encouragement. If you're not holding on to Jesus, there is a chance to repent. There is a chance to turn around and come and hold on to him. It's not the final word yet, but Jesus is saying, turn around, come back. I love you. I want to give you everything you need. If you would just hold on to me, if you would just turn around and see me. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have such an encouraging word to give us. And God, that you would love us enough to cut through soul and spirit, through, through joint and marrow. And God, that you want to dissect the, the motives of our heart and the intentions of our soul. And God, you want to draw us back to a right relationship with you. And so God, this morning, I pray for those that maybe aren't holding on to you like they should. God, I pray that today's word would be an encouragement for them to turn around and hang on to you. God, you are all that we need. And we thank you that as we hold on to you, we have no other need. You will supply us with everything that we really need. And so God, we look to you and we hold on to you with everything. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.